Emerald podcast series. Research that makes a difference. Hello, welcome to the Emerald podcast series. My name is Thomas and my guest today is Ian Robson, Professor of Strategy at the University of Dundee School of Business here in the UK. His main area of academic research concerns strategy, stakeholder management, and communitarian models of corporate governance, in which he has several publications. Ian has held several senior leadership posts in UK universities across a 30-year career. His book, The Reflective Leader, Reflexivity and Practice, is out now. I am currently a professor of strategy and Associate Dean at uh, the University of Dundee in Scotland. Um, I've lived most of my life in Scotland and have travelled around Scotland, uh, working for the University of St Andrews, University of Aberdeen, uh, the University of Abertay in Dundee. So I have a long association with uh, universities in Scotland, but I originate from Newcastle, as you can probably tell from the accent, and that is where my heart is. And your favourite football team, I believe. Well, my favourite football team is doing well as we speak, and that's Newcastle United. A tremendous, tremendous club, tremendous team, and a wonderful community of people. Absolutely, absolutely. And I must say, you're travelling around the beautiful parts of Scotland, uh, Dundee, St Andrews. Oh, indeed. I mean, the the, uh, scenery is is fantastic. Um, It's a terrific part of the world, really, uh, and it has everything. You know, it has wonderful water, rivers, locks. Hills, mountains, countryside, it's it's a terrific place. The beaches are superb. And if you're just if you're looking for a beautiful place to, to live and work, then you couldn't beat Scotland really. Could I ask to start off with what is reflective practice? Yes, uh, reflective practice is the art of looking back in order to improve performance going forward. Simply put, it's in part a natural human characteristic to think about the last time we, we did something, the last time we performed an act, whether it's basic or complicated, and to consider the learning that occurred in how we did whatever we did in the past. And that uh, reflective practice, that version of reflective practice is very simplistic. Uh, it's a very natural human activity. In fact, it occurs in many parts of, of nature, not just in human activity, of course. But, you know, we see reflective practice as fundamental to learning. And you mentioned the difference between, kind of, say, conscious uh, reflection and, say, subconscious reflection. Yes, I do think that there, there is uh, a difference. And I do think that subconscious reflection is something we naturally do, especially when we're performing repeated actions, when we're doing things that are very familiar, when we're immersed in parts of our life, parts of our work. There isn't much need to uh, raise reflective practice to the conscious level. Um, usually these are very basic things, you know, like preparing food or eating food or, you know, doing, you know, mundane or basic acts in our lives. These things, you know, we often are able to learn without really thinking too much about it. Whereas conscious reflection is, is something that's much more progressive and developmental, often involving more complicated acts that we perform at work or, or in life generally. And it's, it's really um, a systematic approach to thinking more deeply about what we've done, how we did it, where the gaps in our performance might have been, and thinking about how we might do it better next time. So reflective practice does 
have an unconscious and a conscious dimension. And it's the conscious dimensions that I focused on in this book. I, I used to work for someone who always asked after a big event, you know, what went well, what went not so well, what we do differently next time. That's a very simple way to get into those questions. Where could we go from there? Reflective practice has often been aligned directly to problem solving. And when you look at any standard problem solving model, and in fact, you know, um, any model of learning, problem solving, uh, innovation, creativity, many, many models in management and outside of the management field actually involve a cyclical process. And sometimes it might involve more than one cycle, um, as in Argyris's double loop learning. But we often start with the definition of a problem and then work through the cycle to define the problem, consider potential solutions to the problem, implement those solutions, and then reflect back on whether that solution was effective in relation to the problem, and then adjust for the next cycle. So perhaps implement a slightly different solution or reframe your understanding of the problem. So that, that system of reflection is, is, is one that is very strong, uh, even in today's practice of, of, uh, of developing decision makers, managers, and leaders. And one of the issues that's, that occurs to me, certainly through writing the book, is that not everything is a, is a problem. There are many phenomena that you still want to uh, manage or, or work through or work with that you wouldn't necessarily need to frame as a problem. So this model of problem solving and, and cyclical behavior is very useful for some things in business, but, but not for everything. Many things in our lives and in business uh, are unsolvable. They're complex, wicked problems, perhaps, and you have to live with them. So finding ways of working with phenomena, you know, with challenges, uh, with characteristics, with uncertainty, um, with threats, these are, these are other ways of looking at, at things that we do in work. Absolutely. I mean, this, when I was doing it, it was with a very strict focus on, you know, big drives to extend customer contracts, to sign new customer contacts. And that was, that was it. That was the, the very practical drive. Yeah. And I think, I think in business today, you know, it's so complex. We have mul multiple layers um, within every business of phenomena, of pressure, of tension, things that force companies to change on a, on a, minute by minute basis in, in many instances, not just on a, a weekly, monthly or annual basis. And so I think the, the need for more reflection and then more complicated forms of reflection is, is ever more prevalent because we, we see reflection as, as a way in which you can capture that learning and in which you can start to develop your own practice in relation to these dynamics. And that's what, that's what the book is about. The book is really about introducing practicing leaders and managers uh, to methods of, of reflecting much more deeply on the work that they do on a daily basis and how they can learn from that and improve their practice in relation to the challenges that they have. And, and you worked closely with a number of, let's say, practitioners in order to achieve this, in order to get some ideas. Well, I did. And the, I mean, the roots for the book really are in my teacher training from many years ago when yeah, we were introduced to Donald Shearn's work on the reflective practitioner and the reflective practical. And, you know, it, it was, it was introduced to us as students of pedagogy and andragogy that 
everybody really learns through elements of, of reflection. It's, it's just part of human nature, but that, you know, this is a ubiquitous concept. It, it, it covers every aspect of life and every aspect of work. And it was a surprise to me that the complexities of, of doing anything, you know, um, managing household, uh, bringing up children, um, managing your garden, running an allotment, all of these things are very complicated if you start to disaggregate the fundamental elements of them and then work out where reflection occurs in dealing with every element. There's a lot of reflection in a lot of our lives. So from that point, I, I was always really interested in, in looking at reflection in professional life and in practice. And this book gave me the opportunity to do that. And in doing that, the first step was actually to go and talk with elite football coaches. So I talked to the head coaches of several Scottish Premier League football teams. And I asked questions about football education, where reflection is useful, how reflection occurs, what technologies are used to support reflection, um, how individual professional footballers are mentored, how they're managed, how they're developed as people and as footballers, and what reflective practices permeate the day of a professional elite footballer. This is someone who's earning, you know, huge amounts of money, who is on the world stage, who is in media spotlight. And, you know, it was amazing to see just how reflection is incorporated in every facet of, of a footballer's life. Now, at that point, when they become 16, 17, these people are then introduced to a highly professionalized, educative culture. And in that culture, they are trained to look at their own performance, the performance of the team around them, and the performance of their opponents in great detail. And once they, they become fully-fledged senior professionals, their daily routine is to look very carefully at every aspect of their lives, and that includes nutrition, so that they reach their physical peak. That um, advice is, is digital. It's in the form of an app that players access. The app will tell these players uh, which professional staff they need to have a meeting with, who they need to talk to, and then there will be learning points, and there will be points where they have to analyze the gaps. Did you do everything? Yes or no. What did you not do? What, what gaps do you need to fill? How is your performance against your target? What is the gap? So thinking about gaps, thinking about the model of, of performance, of nutrition, all of them elicit a gap of some sort. And those gaps are where the reflection takes place. So a footballer on a, a daily basis, frequently every day, must reflect across a whole range of performance metrics on how they've done in achieving their target. So that involves reflection from the, from the individuals themselves in understanding what they need to do during the day, in looking at what happens when during the day, in looking at the metrics they're given in relation to their target every day during the day. So the level of reflection is incredible. It's, it's huge. They have to reflect constantly. And it's things that are slightly less measurable, like attitude, that head coaches also pick up on. So how do they look in training? Do they look happy? Do they look positive? These other aspects of, of reflection come into play. The reason for focusing on elite football prior to writing the book was to get an insight into this acutely pressurized environment to see how 
reflection manifests in these sorts of, of contexts. And it gave me a tremendous insight as to what reflection is. Although reflection, as I say, is not a word that's used at all in these settings. Sometimes education is used, sometimes the word development is used, but really it's the reflective practice that brings about the huge improvement in the performance of, of elite footballers, cricketers, and so on. Now, we add layers to that reflective practice when we start looking at reflexivity, because reflexivity would be uh, to bring in a, a higher level of learning and reflective requirement. And that might, might be to bring in things like different models of patterns of play, different views on positional play, different views on coaching techniques. Uh, it could be to do with, with psychological modeling and theories about how motivation occurs, how we can improve concentration, how we can be more reflective. So there are many layers and possibilities beyond reflection that bring in external frameworks, external concepts, practices, ideas, technologies to enable development and learning in these various contexts. So my, my work with the, the head coaches of Scottish football clubs was, was tremendous, really insightful, but it did identify this gap for knowing more about reflection and understanding what reflexivity can be in helping to reflect on reflection and helping to get outside of these inherent potential personal biases. One element that's really important here in terms of the consideration of bias. Uh, now, many years ago, um, a psychologist uh, wrote about a fundamental attribution error. A fundamental attribution error is something that is uh, a, a very common problem in today's society where very, very quick to attribute causality from one element of life to something that we've observed happening in, in the world. And one of the best examples you can give actually is a, is a football manager. And I'll give you the example of Sir Alex Ferguson at Manchester United. Now, you know, we all know that he's a phenomenal individual. Uh, it's, it's said that he's a tremendously nice, personable character. Um, and that uh, you know he, he he contributes a lot to charity and society, so he's a, he's a good person. Now, if you're a Manchester United fan, you might think that he was almost entirely responsible for the great success that the club achieved when he was manager for for approximately 17 years. They won many cups, league championships. It was a golden era for Manchester United, and the tendency is for us all to attribute that success to Sir Alec himself. Now, that would be a mistake, and it'd be very simplistic to do that. Now, undoubtedly, he is a phenomenal manager, um, was a phenomenal manager in, in that era. But there are many more variables in, in professional life than just one person and just the leader. I mean, the other variables could well have been to do with the resources he had to invest in players, in coaching, developing players, the resources he had behind the scenes to manage various aspects of the club. It could be down to the fact that he had several world-class leaders in his teams for many, many years. I'm thinking Roy Keane, Mark Hughes, you know, Steve Bruce. They, they had many players who were at the very top of their game, who played very, very well for Manchester United for many years. Uh, and there was also an ethos, a culture, a, a mindset of success 
of excellence that I think Sir Alec probably had to have a hand in, uh, in terms of inculcating and developing that mindset. However, we'll never know just exactly what his relationship or his influence was over all of those variables, all of those elements. At the same time, you have to look at the opposition. There wasn't really, for most of that time, uh, any more than one or perhaps two true competitors to Manchester United in the domestic scene. And that just tells you that this causality issue needs much more reflection, much more analysis, much more thought to understand how these variables work together. And, and that is partially what the book is about. It's trying to tease out those dimensions and dynamics of real life to understand causality a little better or to understand the context far better to enable us to pick out the variables that are more important than others and to focus on the things that really lead to better performance than others. And that's what this book is about. It's about understanding that context. So it's a much more holistic idea than simply we did X and it gave us Y. It is, although, I mean, you know, you have to admit that on, on many occasions that might well be true. It might well be quite easy to understand causality. It's just that when we, when we look at, at leadership, Leadership is a fairly nebulous concept in the, in the sense that anyone can be a leader. It can be taught. Some people do have natural characteristics and abilities um, that help them to stand out as people who uh, talk sense, speak their mind, have a strong character, are extrovert, so, and, and are very influential um, but generally, leaders can come in all, all shapes and sizes. And, and my basic definition of a leader would be an individual who can see a better future for an organization, for a team, for a group, and can persuade other people around them that that vision of, the, of a better future is achievable, is valid, is relevant, and is something that we should work towards. So we get that interaction between someone who is a a leader and people who want to follow that leader. Um, you can't be a leader without having followers. And this is why when we talk of examples in, in public life, Winston Churchill, Nicola Sturgeon, Margaret Thatcher, some of their qualities would have been to persuade their group or their community or their team. So if that's what a leader is, then perhaps it's easier to see because that, that sort of view of a leader is still fairly woolly. It's still quite difficult to grasp. You still can't be certain of, of what a, a political leader in particular um, is doing to persuade hundreds, thousands, and then millions of people to follow them into this vision of the future. It's difficult to tease out the variables and to isolate them and to identify them, then to make some sort of judgments on, on their importance. Uh, with a manager or with management, um, you know, we're looking at much more sort of um, measurable activities, though still with an element of subjectivity. So managers, of course, are more responsible for operational activities, making things happen. And so I think with managers, it's slightly easier to understand causality or to identify causal relationships between variables and outcome. Whereas with leaders, it's much more subjective and nebulous. So while both activities um, require reflection, 
the focus on the book is on leadership because that's where reflection and reflexivity can offer more value and offer more positive impact on on effectiveness. I'm interested in your definition of uh, a leader is quite relational and we tend to focus on the leader in the relationship but relationships are necessarily at least two-way if not multi-way um, so I wonder is there something to be gained from looking at the followers and their part of the relationship? I think you're right I think uh, I think followership is certainly a, a large area of, of research in the leadership field and we've already begun to, to look at um, leader and follower relationships from many perspectives and one that really interests me is is the idea of toxic leadership and and how how uh, toxicity can still um, command a following uh, in a in an organisation, whether that's through um, you know threats and fear uh, or or some other reason, we're not clear. But and I, I, I do remember um, reading Nortaus's book in which he he started to talk in more detail about toxicity and the the, the toxic leader can be someone who is, you know, an extremely unlikable individual, someone who's extremely powerful, whose character you're not attracted to, whose ideas you don't agree with. But there may be something coercive. Um, there may be something oppressive. There may be an organizational context which is constricting, which doesn't allow you as a, an employee to have a voice. And so followership is forced. And that's... that's the other side of this positive developmental ideal in reflective practice is is that you know we're often in positions where we're oppressed and as a result we become incredibly negative about our work and you know reflection isn't something that we are really bothered about doing because you you get worn down by this sort of environment. I've been in these environments in my own working life and it's very unpleasant. So we have to remember that that it's a it's a very rich tapestry out there. You know, the possibilities are incredibly broad. And, you know, these sorts of ideas are undoubtedly helpful, but have to be set within a context of practice and in a context of relationship between a leader and the community that person's set up to lead. Yeah, so I was talking to a psychologist recently who was saying, like, if things are just a little bit bad... It's very easy to just let them continue because you can put up with it. So what you really want is a disaster because then you'll improve and you'll get to a better place sooner. <laughs> There's a phrase I came, came across years ago, um, which I first read in, in a paper by a, a Californian professor, Brian McAlvey, and, and it's this phrase, adaptive tension. And he talks about this adaptive tension as uh, an understanding that, one, there is a... a some causal phenomena that you can observe uh, in real life that you can see is creating a tension that you need to respond to. Now, on a football pitch, that could be um, it could be a, a a towering tackle in midfield. It could be a decision made by a referee to award you a free kick or award a free kick against you. It could be a moment of brilliance and creativity by by a player where he creates a bit of space or uses extreme pace to get away from a defender. But these are potential moments of transition. It can also be a penalty miss or a penalty save or a corner or some sort of um, of set play moment in a football match. And it's the same in cricket when you, know, when you get a wicket or when someone, you know, 
uh, plays a tremendous stroke to, you know, well, you're six over the boundary or, or whatever. And it's the same in every sport, netball, basketball, hockey. Every sport has these moments of transition. So organizational life is punctuated by moments of transition. It could be the um, a report that tells you that a new piece of legislation is coming out. It could be a change in, in, in tax regulations. It could be an opportunity in international trade. It might be to do with work practices, hybridity. It could be a new technology that allows us to work from home. It could be anything that creates a, a moment that you really need to respond to that gives a sense of urgency to an organization. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really struck because um, you know, sports are really interesting because, in a sense, it's like a, a repeatable experiment, right? You have, you have the same the same game, different players, different circumstances, whereas a lot of the, the VUCA world things we're dealing with, you know, responding to the pandemic or a particular business opportunity is not repeatable. It gets into the idea of competence, right? So I hesitate to blow my own trumpet. I'm very competent at tying my shoelaces because I do it all the time. Responding to the COVID-19 pandemic, I had to do it once. That That's right. Except that, um, you know, tying your shoelaces is, is a good example of, of where reflection, you might think reflection is never needed to tie your shoelaces. It's unconscious. However, you, like me, will have bought that pair of shoes where the laces don't quite tighten when you tie them. Yes. So, well, that's a moment of reflection, isn't it? You know, you, you, you still, when you buy a new pair of shoes, there is a level of uncertainty about whether those laces are going to need a double knot or a single knot. So even with really mundane issues and examples, you find an element of reflection still required. Now, obviously, the pandemic was was a huge you know, catastrophe for the world. So that that is... Uh, you know, it's it's a multi-dimensional, very complex uh, moment, which requires, you know, reflection from everybody at every level. So, you know, the the public inquiry into how the the UK government handled the pandemic, for example, that that would look at a myriad of levels, a myriad of services, uh, of companies. I mean, that would be a huge piece of work. But obviously, you know, as a leader. Uh, you can only really reflect on the things you can reflect on, the things that you can directly influence or you're directly part of. And I think that that's, you know, that, that's another thing to bear in mind when we talk about reflection. You can't reflect on a great deal outside of your own experiences, really. You can comment and you can, you can, you can offer reflections. Of course you can. But in order to improve your own performance, which is what this is about, or the performance of your company or team or department, then reflection has a different framing in terms of my work. And ultimately, it is getting to a practical result, an observable result. Or it could be a feeling. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be observable. It could be an emotion result. You might just feel better. And at the end of the day, you know, isn't that more important sometimes? I, okay, I do have one last question, um, which is a very out there question. Um, but we can have some interesting answers, which is that, you know, your academic uh, study, The Reflective Leader, I'm wondering if you ever see a really good example of this in general fiction, like whether it's a TV show, a movie, a book. Like, have you ever seen a really good example where somebody like a creative just really seems to get it? But I mean, I think that the, the most obvious answer to that for me is is in succession oh right i mean brian cox of course is a dundonian he was the uh, chancellor of university the university of dundee for a, for a three-year period and he made a huge impact on the on the city on the university on the region he's he's a a wonderful uh, champion of of that part of the world 
and to see him in a, a global blockbuster like Succession playing the role of uh, of Logan Roy was was fantastic. But you know, when he when he plays that role, you'll see him saying nothing in many scenes of each episode of Succession, and it's quite clear that Logan Roy as a character is a very very ref deep reflector on the dynamics of what is happening before his very eyes in terms of his family, his confidants, uh, his senior executives, uh, the companies he's trying to buy out or compete with. There's a level of reflection that's presented in that program that is phenomenal, actually. And it's in those scenes where he's just sitting with a glass of whiskey or something, and he, he's clearly just mulling things over. Now, that, that's an example of... of reflection in in, in a, a non-real scenario but it does actually uh it does actually show some similarities or parallels with real life of course it does because you know that's what we do you know we sit with a, a cup of tea and and we reflect and think so this is something that we do every day all the time so you know um art and life are quite close together in reflection as far as i can see Thank you very much for sharing all about your study. It is very, very interesting. I think a lot of people find it very helpful. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about our guests and for a transcript of today's episode, please see our show notes on our website. I would like to thank Fiona Allison and Daniel Ridge for their help with today's episode. And Alex Jungius from This Is Distorted. You've been listening the Emerald Podcast Series.